Good, good, good. Uh, great. Good to be with you. Uh, who still has a perfect bracket? <laughs> Ain't nobody perfect. We all need Jesus. That's the end of the sermon. Let's pray. All right, no. <laughs> Uh, hey, it is good, good to be here. Uh, go Blue. All right, we have a ton of work today, uh, and so I want to dive right in. Uh, we have been, as we've been talking about in the Gospel of Mark, uh, really looking at the life of Jesus, and, uh, which is always just encouraging to see, and uh, really, how is Jesus our servant uh, king, right? He's our king, and this is true, yet he's our servant, and simultaneously those things happen, and then he calls us into a life like his, and so part of him calling us into a life like his is calling us into power and authority with passion and yet at the same time into humility and meekness and servitude and gentleness and really the sermon series, the title of it, actually came from the passage that we're looking at today because this is the theme of the Gospel of Mark at large. It's the thesis statement, if you will, of all of Mark. And so I'm excited to dive in. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be throughout the whole day today, so there'll be no flipping around. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, the ushers are coming forward. We'd love to give you a Bible. Uh, if you do not have one, that is our gift to you. We want you to have it. We want you to use it during the week. We want you to read it. I mean, we want your hands on the physical Word of God, you know. Uh, you can also follow along on your smartphone. You can follow these instructions here, and that will get you to the link with some notes and all the scriptures and stuff like that. Uh, we say this every week because we mean it. It's why we pass out Bibles. We want your hand. We want your eyes on the Word. We actually believe that the Word of God gives life. We believe that this is where life is found in a lot of ways. In fact, even in this very passage that we're going to be reading this morning, uh, this week, in fact, yesterday, uh, a pretty big tragedy hit my family. Uh, and as I was looking at this very text, it's what gave me hope and reminded me of the reality of the gospel that we get to see. Christ was speaking to me through the scriptures. And so we want your eyes on the word because we genuinely believe that Christ, the Holy Spirit, he speaks to us through the scriptures and he wants to mold us into his image and comfort us with his love and make us into his likeness. And that's what our hope is, why we read the word every week as a body of Christ, okay? And so Mark chapter 10, we're going to actually look at four stories, and they're all kind of tied together. And what Mark is doing here is he's kind of asking and answering the question, hey, what is discipleship? What does it mean to actively uh, follow Jesus? What does it mean to be saved, to come into the kingdom of God, and then to walk with Christ, discipleship, to be made like Christ? What does that look like? How do we do that? What's the idea of that at large? And so Mark sort of treats this section like a sandwich, where the first and the last story are good examples of discipleship, and the middle stories are not so good examples of discipleship. Why Mark thought the bread was better than what's in between, I don't know, but there's grace for sin, amen? But that's what he's doing here, okay? And so that's what we're going to do today is we're gonna look at those four stories that Mark is stringing together. And if you realize, if your eyes uh, pay attention, there's actually really similar words that he uses in these stories to try to show us as the reader or the hearer how he's trying to string these together. So Mark chapter 10, we're gonna read the whole first story and it's uh, in verse 13. It says this, and they, these are just people, were bringing children to him, Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. 
Okay, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this story because the idea of it is actually really, really simple. To be saved, to enter the kingdom of God, to get into heaven, to be a Christian, you have to become like a child, which is dependent or needy or humble, even desperate in a way. In fact, the kingdom of God is gained by this desperate dependence, this uh, longing and a needing of Jesus. And so this may sound basic if you're a follower of Christ. You've heard this analogy before. But in that culture where children were seen more as a a nuisance than a blessing, this is actually a profound statement of Jesus. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, it's kind of the same in our culture too, right? We kind of see kids more as a nuisance than as a blessing. And so we kind of see them as a annoying in a way, right? Or man, they cost money and they cost time. And so God forbid we sacrifice for somebody else's sake, right? That's what we tend to think about in a way in our culture. And so uh, Jesus is actually making a kind of a shocking statement about what it means to follow him, which immediately, if we allow the word to kind of press in on us some, I think we'll feel the weight of this more than just letting it kind of uh, rain over our heads, right? First of all, do you view getting saved, do you view entering into the kingdom as something that is actually gained by desperate dependence? Is that the reality of what you view uh, entering into a relationship with Christ with? By becoming humble, by becoming a, needing, a needy people. We'll see this more in a second in the later stories. But this is what you enter into the kingdom with. And secondly, kind of almost as a sidebar, uh, do you see kids as annoying when they're being disruptive and loud? Or do you look at them and realize that they're actually trying to teach you about what the kingdom of God is like? I think so often we see kids as annoying in a way rather than humbling ourselves and actually learning from them. Amen? Look, the moms in the room are like, amen, preach it, brother, right? I saw you. You can say it. I saw you over there nodding your head, right? But this is true, right? Man, the kids are trying to teach us about what it looks like to be a Christian. Are we learning from them or are we pushing them aside and losing the lesson that is there for us in the scriptures? So Jesus goes on in verse 17, he's going to give an example, a counterexample even, that's why Mark puts this story next to this story uh, of what it looks like to gain the kingdom. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great Uh, possessions. In this, we kind of get an opposite example, right? This rich young ruler is what we see uh, in this man, and he's kind of the exact opposite of needy. He's actually sufficient in a way. We may be tempted to see this man as arrogant, and that's what we think the counterexample is, but actually this man probably isn't arrogant. We would be tempted to think he's arrogant because he says, hey, I kept all the law. I've actually done all these things, and for us, we are so used to realizing that, man, no, the gospel talks about 
the heart of the law, not just the letter of the law, but in reality, this man may have genuinely, from the time he can remember, really uh, kept all these things. He may have never stolen anything or defrauded anyone, or he may have not committed murder, right? Or these things that some of them are actually easier to do than other things. He was thinking about the letter of the law rather than the heart of the law, but he's not even trying to be haughty here. I mean, Paul himself in Philippians 3 also said he kept the whole law. In fact, you actually see all these examples in uh, the scriptures of people that believe in that, man, they keep the whole law. So he's not really a haughty man. In fact, there in verse 17, you see him running up to Jesus, which shows humility, and then kneeling before him, it says. And so this man's actually probably a humble man. This, it's not trying to show us the opposite and that he's haughty. It's trying to show us the opposite and that he's a self-sufficient man. And children are not self-sufficient. They are desperately dependent. You track him? And so he's trying to do this on his own, and that's where the failure lies. In verse 17, you see this man going to the right person with the right question and the right posture, but the wrong assumption. And this is what's happening here, right? Listen, your soul is going to live forever. You will have either eternal life or eternal death, eternal separation. So the question that he asks, what can I do to inherit eternal life? That's the right question, He goes to the right man because only Jesus himself has the power to resurrect us from the grave. He's the only one that has shown he is sufficient enough to resurrect the dead. So he actually goes to the right person. He even has the right posture. He's humble, right? But then he has the wrong assumption of how he actually gains this. Your assumptions about what it means to follow Christ when they're not focused or rooted in scripture, friends, could utterly destroy you. They could utterly destroy you, and this should give us all great pause, right? What are you assuming about Christ? What are you assuming about following Jesus? To have the right questions but the wrong assumptions could lead to death, and it could lead to you walking away from Jesus very sad, as this man did. And you see that Christ actually loved this man. Verse 21 says he loved him. He didn't want him to walk away with sadness. He wanted to walk away with eternal life. But assumptions about Christ can steal your life in Christ, family. What assumptions are you walking in to the king with? What do you think it means to follow Jesus? Is it rooted in truth or is it kind of rooted in just what you think? And this man, it was rooted in what he thought and then he became self-sufficient and in that he walked away sad. How much are you assuming about Jesus? See, Jesus sees this man and he immediately begins to try to reframe his perspective. How? Well, the man comes up and calls him good teacher and only God is good. And so what Jesus is saying is that, hey, if you're calling me good, you're actually calling me God which would have been the right thing to do, but Jesus is forcing this man to wrestle with, do you really believe the things that you're even saying about me? Do you believe that I'm God? Because if so, then you'll follow me as God. You'll do whatever it takes to come close to me. Do you actually believe this is what Jesus is saying? He's forcing him to wrestle as the Lord, I think, often forces us to wrestle. In verse 17 and 20, what we see in this man is that he thinks that behavior is the ultimate requirement for religion. He thinks the things that he does, this is what will gain him access. And many of us have the same view on God. Even though we know better, we may even proclaim it's not what we do. However, we think the better we behave, the more things we do, this gains us greater access to God. I know I think that. 
And so weeks like this week where I may not have had the best times in prayer, I may have not had the most time in the Word, then all of a sudden I begin to feel like, oh, I don't get as much of God. Why? Because I still have a works-based mentality in my mind. I think, what must I do to inherit life? What must I do to inherit Christ, who is life? And I think I'm not doing enough. And so I think a lot of us struggle with this, right? We don't become dependent like children. We're not desperate for God. We are self-sufficient. And we kind of ask the same thing this man does. Do you see the air in his question? He says, what must I do? I, self-reliance, do action-oriented. And in fact, uh, every other religion in the world, every other major religion are do religions. If you do enough good things, then you will appease blank God. I mean, even secularism and atheism, it's actually do religions as well. The more you do, the more value you have. Your value comes in what you produce. And so if we do not serve a do religion, that's not what we believe as Christians. In fact, we are a done religion. It's not what we do, but it's what somebody else has already done for us. And so this is the reality, but he's missing this, right? Christ is making him wrestle with this. Hey, will you wrestle with it for a second? Do you believe, right? Do you believe that, that this is a do or a done religion? I know I'm so often a do. And I try to do, and I do, and I do more and more, and I think that this is how God is pleased, but God's reorienting this man's mind here. He's pointing out to follow him. And so what he says to him is, hey, if you want eternal life, then sell everything you have and follow me. And at first glance, we would go, wait a minute, this isn't how you get saved. But it is, right? See, money was this man's idol, the text tells us. He had great possessions is what it says. Jesus says, in order to go to heaven, in order to have eternal life, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you can't have any other gods before me. And money was his God. See, if you realize what Jesus talked about, he's actually reading off the Ten Commandments to the man. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not lie, honor your father and mother. These are the Ten Commandments. And he points out the six horizontal commandments, the commandments that has to do with man to man, the way we treat our fellow man. But he doesn't point out any of the vertical commandments, how we interact with God. And so this man may have been horizontally a really good person. He may have been a kind man, a gentle man, treating other people well, but he's actually missing the relationship with God. And so Jesus says, you have another God before me, the one true God, so get rid of that God and then come follow me. And the man is unwilling to surrender that God in his life so he doesn't have eternal life. Something is better than Jesus in this man's life. Jesus essentially says to him, hey, sell all your treasures and buy the field that you might find the pearl, me, is what Jesus is saying, and he's unable to do it. You gain eternal life by believing in and following Jesus, and Jesus forces this man to come head on with his idol, and he's unwilling to do it. Daniel Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, he says this, he says, Jesus also gave him insight concerning what or who really matters most in life, and what you decide now will determine where you will go later. This man goes his own way, and he clings to his possessions. He turns away from Jesus. How ironic is the kingdom of God, even in this story? The children who possess nothing, they do not lack anything, but the man who did not lack anything, he was still missing something. 
How ironic, how upside down is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, friends, is gained by desperate dependence, by a deep longing for Christ, by becoming dependent on who he is and what he has done, not what we do. And this is what Christ is trying to highlight And I know that if you've been in church, you've heard this idea before, but the reason it is flooded in Scripture is because you and I are a people that depend on our works all the time. And the Bible wants to reorient that in us, friends. Let it do a work even right now in your hearts. What are you believing about God? So it keeps going. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astounded and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, I love that word began, it was like he was about to try to boast and Jesus probably kind of cut him off like, that's enough bro, I got you, right? (laughs) See, we have left everything and followed you, he says. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last shall be first. And so Jesus kind of senses the tension of the situation that he just created, and he doesn't shy away from it. He actually presses into it. He says, yeah, that that was tough, huh? It's really hard to be saved, y'all, right? But notice, he's not kind of being a jerk with that. There's actually great compassion here. He calls them children, just like the children he just referenced in the story before. He longs for them to come in. He wants them to be saved. He just knows that this isn't done by human effort, and he wants to push this point home that they may get that. And so Jesus uses an analogy of the camel going through the eye of a needle. The camel was actually the largest animal in that portion of the world. It was probably the biggest animal that any of them had ever seen. And so he uses that as the analogy. This actually probably would have been laughed at or kind of smiled on by the first original hearers because of how absurd it is. But it would have pushed the point home, right? In our world, it would be like, children, how hard it is to get to heaven, it is harder for a whale to fit in a worship pastor's skinny jeans than for the, the, right? That's what he's saying. Not you though, Anthony, all right? You be wearing them. You, you all right. You all right, all right? <laughs> right? But that's what he's saying. And it would, kind of would have been laughed at, and then you would have thought about a whale getting in a worship pastor's skinny jeans. You'd be like, yeah, that's actually impossible, right? And so this is what Jesus is trying to highlight, the impossibility. It's way harder than you think, but friends, it's also way easier than you think to get saved. That's what Jesus highlights. It's way harder than you think, but it's way easier. It's harder because you cannot earn it yourself. You cannot save yourself, and all of us are used to saving ourselves. That's what we are literally ingrained with in our culture is to fend for oneself, to fight for oneself, to make the most out of every opportunity. And Jesus says, no, I need you to be like a child, desperately dependent. It's harder than you think. At the same time, it's way easier than you think, right? Because you just become like a child, You become dependent. You become humble. You just long for Jesus. 
And in this, you come with nothing in total dependence, and then you gain everything on the back end. You need nothing to be saved. Jesus offers it to all. The kingdom of God, it literally wants to be given to you, and Jesus offers it freely. We just have to accept that gift. It's easy, but it's hard. It's a paradox. It's upside down. It's this backwards way of thinking. This is what Jesus is trying to press us into. How do you gain the kingdom? By becoming desperately dependent. Once again, we want to be a desperate and a dependent people. And when you do this, Jesus says, you gain it all. As Peter tries to start probably boasting, like, hey, we left our fishing nets and our boats and our dad, right? He's like, yeah, I got you, I got you, right? But he says, listen, you will gain a hundredfold, he says. You don't just surrender it all and then gain nothing. What you surrender, you gain multiplied by a hundred, Jesus says. Now, he sobers it. In this life, it comes with persecution. In this life, it may be a little bit difficult. But in the age to come, where there is no more tear, there is no more sorrow, there is no more persecution, you literally gain it, and you gain it a hundredfold. This is what it means to walk into the kingdom of God. So Jesus even sets hope before us. Do you believe in the kingdom? Because if you do, you gain a hundredfold, friends. Do you believe that? That's hard to believe, right? Because life kind of beats us up sometimes, and it kind of steals our hope from us. And so the story goes on, verse 32. And when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Really important point there, okay? Don't miss this. They understand what's about to happen. In fact, everybody that's following Jesus understands because he's proclaimed very, very, very blatantly what's going to happen to him. It's really important for the last story we read today. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. I mean, you can't get more direct than this, right? This is exactly to the point what's going to happen, okay? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? Good job of laughing because that is supposed to be funny. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And when Jesus called them to him, he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Man, this whole story is just wild, right? Like imagine you're pouring your heart out to your boys, you know? Like, man, I'm about to suffer, I'm about to die, I'm about to be beaten. And someone's like, man, I'm sorry, bro. Hey, can you loan me 200 bucks? That's essentially what this was like, right? That's essentially what happens here. James and John, they ask that kind of sly request, right? They're like, hey, uh, can you give us whatever we ask of you before we ask it of you, Jesus? Can you promise that of us? 
right? Now, don't be fronting in church. Some of y'all be praying like that too, all right? Whenever your prayer starts with like, hey, God, look, listen, that's you, all right? You're probably doing this, okay? And I do this, right? Which, by the way, quick side note, quick side note. Man, aren't you glad that God doesn't answer every single one of your prayers with a yes? If God answered every one of your prayers with a yes, you'd be drinking a cup that you do not want to drink, right? Man, we need to realize that. Man, Jesus is gracious in his no often, And so maybe today, the one thing you even take out of this when you walk out of here today is maybe you just need to say a quick prayer to God before you get in your car and say, God, thank you for not always answering my prayer request. That may be the best thing to take away, right? So James and John, what they thought, they thought in following Jesus, they wanted this power, this position, this uh, authority, this reward in a way. And they assumed, which once again, assumptions kill, right? They assumed that by following Jesus, this is what they would gain. Now, Jesus just said that you get a hundredfold. So this isn't a totally absurd request, but they still assume incorrectly in this way about what it means. Our discipleship is probably never as noble as we imagine it to be, but Jesus accepts us anyway. That's really cool. Praise God for that grace, right? The disciples thought they were so ready to do whatever it took for Jesus, right? James and John, Peter, I think we often think the same thing. And Jesus, rather than rebuking, just patiently accepts us and then teaches us in the process. It's probably never as noble as we think it is, but God is more gracious than we could ever dream him to be. This is a beautiful truth, right? And so Jesus now walks in with this sign of humility, this sign of grace, right? Man, how easy it is for our worship uh, and discipleship to be blended with self-interest. That's what's happening here. Or maybe even worse, uh, we, uh, self-interest is kind of masked by worship and discipleship, right? We want something, so we do these things because we actually want something in the end, And so that's what James and John are doing here. I think that's what we do often as well, right? To follow Jesus means to be like Jesus, though, to be the least, to be low, to be humble, to be lowly, to be a slave of all. Listen, this is a wild analogy. In a time and a culture that still had slavery, Jesus was saying, hey, become like a slave, This is unreal. This would have been maybe even more jolting than the rich not being able to get to heaven or than heaven being given to the uh, children. Jesus is flipping the kingdom of God upside down, backwards, on its head throughout this whole section. To enter the kingdom is probably not how we would naturally think. And over and over and over again, he's doing that. There's this sacrificial humility to uh, following Jesus. It's to become like a child. In fact, I even uh, love the understanding that, man, it's not to be great, right? It's to be a servant. And so notice how in verse 41, James and John, their desire for power is actually deteriorating, it's fracturing, it's breaking the fellowship with the other disciples. Because the other disciples, it says they become indignant, right? They're using words I don't even be using, right? I'm so indignant right now. I've never said that in my life, right? There's this uh, uh, above-the-top anger because they want this power and position. Do you notice, once again, Mark's trying to tie the stories together for us. Jesus became indignant because they weren't letting the children come to him. The disciples become indignant because of something they want. Jesus is sacrificial and humble. The disciples are self-seeking, trying to glorify themselves. Both lead to uh, deep anger, but one of them is a righteous anger. One of them is a self-interest anger. I think often if we measure our anger, it's probably often that side, the self-interest anger. 
And so this is what's happening here, right? Jesus is saying, hey, now that you're in the kingdom, now that you are a Christian, now that you are following me, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. And he begins to teach them. And so discipleship is to be desperately dependent on Jesus. This is what gets you into the kingdom. And then to sacrificially follow Jesus. This is it, right? It's really, really simple. It's to be desperately dependent, boom, and then to sacrificially follow. This is simple and yet really, really difficult. What Jesus does here is he actually offers himself as a substitute for the rich man's possessions and for the disciples' hunger for power and fame. To the rich man, he says, hey, come be with me. And to the disciples, he says, hey, come be like me. And this is really what it is to follow Jesus. Come be with me and then come be like me. It's really simple, but it's really complex. Discipleship, Christendom, is this backwards understanding of things And nobody models this greater than our sacrificial servant, Jesus. He is the servant king. He's the one that flips everything on its head. See, in the world, the more important you are, the more people serve you. But in the kingdom of God, the more important you are, the more you serve people. How many people are you serving? This shows how great you are in the kingdom. Notice he doesn't rebuke the disciples' desire for greatness. That's actually a good thing right? There's something in you that wants to win. There's something in you that wants to be great. That's a good thing. He just rebukes the way that you accomplish that. And so many of us think that the more money or prestige or power, people that we have following us, then the more worthy we are. But in reality, Jesus says, man, how many people are you laying your life down for? This is what it means to be great. And Jesus is our greatest example for he laid down his life for the whole world, for all of mankind, right? And so Jesus then says, don't be self-sufficient nor seek self-reward. You must give yourself away for the sake of others. Follow me, be an example like me, which now brings us to our final story here. Verse 46, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. Remember earlier, the disciples rebuked the children for coming. Not many people are rebuking him. These stories are tied together, okay? They rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Like, put yourself in that story for a second, right? You're trying to go with Jesus. You're probably trying to be close to him. You don't understand the sacrificial service yet, so you're trying to position yourself close, and this man starts screaming out. Maybe Jesus is teaching them something. Maybe they're having some conversation. Maybe somebody has a question, and he's saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This man actually gets it, y'all, for the son of David was to be the Messiah. What he's saying is, I know that you're the Messiah. Would you please have mercy on me? Would you look upon me, he says. He keeps going. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, which likely would have been his only article of clothing, he leaves behind what is his, unlike the rich man. And he get, uh, uh, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up. Listen to that language, throwing, sprang, and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. 
Bartimaeus is actually the only person in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's actually the only person that got healed that's given a name. He's also the last person to get healed in the Gospel of Mark. There's a reason for that. It's trying to show us almost the pinnacle in a way. And in verse 51, it doesn't read very well in English, but uh, it looks like it says the word rabbi, but Bartimaeus actually says a, a deeper word. He says uh, uh, rabboni, right? He adds a little bit to it, which is almost never used of man. It's almost only used in a prayer to God. All throughout the scriptures, when rabboni is used, it's not just saying teacher, it's saying divine teacher in a way. So he comes up to him and says, divine teacher, divine man. So he knows he's the Messiah, but he begins to recognize he's something a little bit more than just a man. He's actually maybe God in the flesh, and he's crying out to him like this, I want to see. And then it says, your faith has made you well, or it has saved you. That also doesn't read well in the English. That Greek word is sozo, which whenever it's used in the scripture, it represents a physical and a spiritual healing. The way we would use it is he got saved, is what we would say in our language. It was the faith of Bartimaeus that saved him. He believed. In fact, his faith was evident even before his healing because of what happened after his healing. He genuinely believed Jesus. He didn't recover his sight and then kind of run off and do his own thing, right? He recovered his sight and then clung close to Jesus. He followed him. In fact, he followed him on the way, it says. Remember I told you to remember that phrase that they were scared, they knew what was happening, they were going to Jesus' sure death. That language says Bartimaeus kind of, he was going on the way too. He kind of knew this, but he wanted to be wherever Jesus was because he saw him as the reward. Bartimaeus gets it. He genuinely sees before he even physically sees. He sees the reality of who Christ is. It was almost like he wanted to follow Jesus. He just needed to see to be able to follow him. It's like he wanted to walk close to him. He just, he couldn't see, so he couldn't do it. So he says, I want faith to see. And notice Jesus says, hey, go your own way. And the man follows Jesus because the man's way is now lined up with God's way. He's a true disciple. He's desperately dependent on God. And then he sacrificially follows Jesus. His way now becomes the way of the Lord. Notice too, Jesus asked the same question of him that he asked the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? Same question, very different responses. The Bartimaeus asked for sight so that he can follow. The disciples, James and John, they asked for a seat for their own fame. There's a very, very big difference here. Bartimaeus, he wanted Jesus. James and John, they wanted self-glory. And this is the difference. Before we condemn, by the way, let's be real. We are more like James and John than we are like Bartimaeus 99.43% of the time. Right? I feel in my own heart the desire for my own self-glory. It is hard for me to lay down my life for the sake of others or for the sake of exalting Christ. I become self-reliant in a way. And so this discipleship is backwards and how I long for my own heart to be desperate and dependent and how I long for us as a church to be a desperate and a dependent people Gosh, maybe that's why God continually puts you in storms because rather than you clinging on to what he has, he wants to loosen that grip that you may be desperately dependent on Jesus and nothing else. Maybe that's why suffering is in your life. It may not be, but maybe it is. For Bartimaeus, this suffering actually led to faith in a way. His desperation was the doorway for faith. And this is what continues to happen all throughout Scripture and as he clings to Jesus, knowing for sure is going to lead to death, he follows him no matter what. He clings close to him. This is a beautiful text, right? 
Bartimaeus, he didn't care what was going to happen. He just, he wanted Jesus. He longed for Jesus. Is your discipleship, is it desperate? Is it clingy? Do you see Jesus more than just your crutch? Do you see him as your wheelchair, your everything? You don't just lean on him in times of need. He's the only thing you have. Is this what your heart is clinging to? Because if it is, in any situation that may arise in your hearts, listen, it can help you overcome that. There is hope set before you. There is uh, things that God wants to lead you to. But if it's self-sufficient and self-reliant, man, you will deteriorate into nothing and you will go away sad like the rich man. Jesus loves you and he longs for you to come in and to find him more beautiful than all things. And when you find him more beautiful than all things, friends, then everything else in your life, man, it actually becomes in ways kind of easy. It's hard, but it's easy, just like the kingdom is backwards. And so all of a sudden, your money, your possessions, man, what do they mean, right? You give sacrificially and freely because, my gosh, what is it to store up treasures on earth when you can have treasures in heaven, and you become open-handed and ready. You are ready to serve now. You are ready to lay your life down because you realize that the greatest man laid his life down for you. You can't help but to serve. Your generosity now doesn't gain you influence. It's just a response to the gospel. You don't serve to prove that you are worthy of something. You just serve because you are already made worthy by Christ. This is backwards. It's beautiful, friends. It's easy, but it's hard at the same time. He gives us everything we need, but we have to cling to him and release the things that we think will actually give us life and release our own self-sufficiency. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to surrender everything so that you can become everything. <laughs> surrender everything, friends, that you may gain the kingdom of God, that you may have rewards a hundredfold, and listen, friend, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. If you cry out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he will look at you and say, what do you want me to do for you? And if you say, I just want faith, I just want to know you, then eternal life is yours, friends. He didn't withhold it. He didn't make Bartimaeus prove himself. He didn't lead him through all these hoops. There was probably a bunch of flaws with Bartimaeus that we just don't get to see yet, that we get to see in the disciples, right? But he brought them in anyway. And the same thing, if you surrender your life, if you say, I just want you, then man, you get eternal life. And listen, friends, the little bitty things that you give up now, even when they're met with persecutions because you're a Christian, the current suffering is nothing to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed within us. You will gain the kingdom everything, all things that your heart longs for, full joy, full hope, full peace, full rest, everything that we long for is found in Christ and we will gain it if we surrender our lives to him. This is the promise, but we have to surrender. We have to surrender. We have to release the things that we're kind of clinging on to. Tim Keller, who's a pastor and an author in New York, he says this. He says, Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to die and to give his life. That sets him apart from the founder of every other major religion. Their purpose was to live and to be example. Jesus' purpose was to die and to be a sacrifice. Jesus becomes the substitute, friends, for whatever you lack. And so why cling to riches? He's far richer than anything you can gain on this earth. Why cling to self-sufficiency? You can't raise yourself from the grave, but Jesus can. 
Why cling to any other hope or any other thing? Jesus becomes a substitute. So the disciples were clinging for power, but Jesus is going to make them far more powerful than they can understand if they just submit to him. The rich man was clinging to riches, but Jesus is going to make him far more richer. He loves him, and the same thing is true for us. What are we clinging on to? What are we unwilling to surrender to Christ? Where are we not desperately dependent, friends? I want us to wrestle with that. Are we clinging on to riches, to fame, to power, to sex, to some relationship, right? To, to our lifestyle, whatever that might look like. If Jesus asks you to surrender it, are you willing to do that? That's what you have to wrestle with. Because to surrender it means to gain the kingdom. You gain all things. But it's real hard to loosen that grip sometimes, friends. So I pray that we would be a church that desperately surrenders I pray we would be a church that follows Jesus, that it would be this backwards discipleship. Listen, I love even the singing of, to God today and the longing, the raising up of our voices. What that shows is this desperation, this dependence, this longing for God. Christ longs to stir that up in us even more, for to gain him is to gain everything, and to lose him is to lose everything. Bartimaeus walks with Jesus, the rich man walks away from Jesus. What direction are we heading? Will we be disciples that release and that follow him, friends? I love you guys. Let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show us today, maybe in worship, maybe after church, what are we clinging to? How are we unwilling to follow you, Jesus? Would you reveal that to us? I pray for those who maybe they do not know you, that they would have a Bartimaeus moment right now. And maybe today through the word, maybe you, Holy Spirit, are pressing in that they would say, I want to be saved. I want a relationship with Jesus. I want to follow him. And friends, if you say this, then eternal life is yours. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. If you say, I want you, Jesus, he is yours. And so maybe today that becomes the prayer of your heart. And God, I pray for those of us who are already followers of you. Would you teach us not to be dependent on our works, not to be dependent on the rewards, to follow you no matter the cost, to have our face set on the glories above. Make us true disciples, Jesus. We pray this in your blessed name. Amen.